All right, welcome to Chapter 5 of Inductive Bible Study. Uh, as you may notice from the sound, I, uh, for some reason, the audio didn't pick up when we were teaching this on uh, Sunday, and so I'm re-recording this uh, here in my office, so a little bit different than normal, um, and so there won't be that participation that we've normally had as well, uh, but I still want to c- cover this content uh, in case you weren't here Sunday or as you catch up, that kind of thing. So we're on chapter five of Inductive Bible Study, Reading with Discernment. Uh, we're still thinking through this idea of observation, coming to the text, seeking to lay everything out on the table before we move to the steps of interpretation and application. And so this chapter is about reading with discernment, looking for specifically uh, words, phrases, what we would call non-routine terms when we come to the text. So you see here in our introduction, of course, we believe every word of Scripture is inspired. Uh, But as you see here, not every word may require the same level of attention. Uh, Every word is specifically given by God um, in the original languages. But there are certain words we're going to see today that require a little more attention to detail, a little more study. And so part of this observation stage is seeking to draw attention Uh, to these words. So some words require special attention as they carry more weight to the meaning of the passage. And these words and phrases are considered non-routine or significant and therefore require more study as you move from the observation stage to the interpretation stage. So we're going to try to pinpoint what are some of these terms? How can we determine if a word or a phrase is indeed non-routine and therefore requires a little more study and a little more attention? And so we're going to look at various Uh, types of these terms uh, through our study today. So the first type of terms, uh, non-routine terms, are what we could call contextually crucial terms. These are words and phrases that in a particular context convey the primary argument or meaning of a passage. Uh, The book says these words and phrases carry special significance for the primary thrust of meaning is communicated through these terms. Simply stated, if one were to summarize the passage, these are the words and phrases that would be indispensable to that summation. So a lot of times these words are repeated throughout a passage. Uh, They might be used in the introduction or concluding section of a unit, uh, or they may come at a climactic or pivot pivot point in the passage. So uh, we're going to look for these contextually crucial terms that in the context these words are significant to giving us understanding of what the passage is. So an example of this is 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 1 through 13. Let me read this, and I want you to be thinking through. I asked our uh, audience on Sunday to be thinking through uh, identifying some of these non-routine terms. So look for in this passage especially uh, words or phrases that are repeated quite a bit or that seem significant to understanding the passage. So 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through uh, 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, 
But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, uh, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, and the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So what were some words you noticed in that uh, as we think through that that maybe uh, are uh, stand out as they're repeated? Well, know, known, knowledge are, are mentioned repeatedly throughout the passage. Uh, we see there at the end, uh, it talks about having a, uh, a weak conscience or a weak brother, a weak person is repeated several times. Some other key terms, maybe not repeated, but key things that would help us uh, to understand what's being talked about is eating meat, a stumbling block, a brother following, those kind of things seem contextually significant. So contextually crucial terms are those terms that just, as we study a passage, these are words that's, that are key to, uh, if we want to understand what 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through uh, 13 are about, we've got to understand these words, okay? The next type of uh, non-routine terms are what we could call theologically profound terms. These are words and phrases that infer theological significance, okay? The book adds these terms wouldn't typically be understood by the general public, and even Bible students may not be familiar with their technical definition, okay? So these are words that a lot of times in Christian circles we get used to understanding, but those outside of the church or those who maybe haven't studied scripture for a long amount of time, these are words that they're pretty unfamiliar with, okay? So they're theologically significant. So a couple examples, Romans 3, 24 and 26. Think through what are some, some theologically profound terms in this passage. Romans 3, beginning in verse 24. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who, is, who has faith in Jesus. So what are some theologically profound terms in those, those verses? Well, justified. Uh, a lot of people might have a basic understanding of what that word means, but understanding the theological significance of that word, they probably don't quite fully understand. Grace even may not be a big word, but understanding specifically what kind of grace is being referenced here. Uh, redemption, propitiation uh, is definitely a word that probably a lot of people even in church circles aren't familiar with. Uh, righteousness, passed over, uh, faith, those kind of words are theologically profound in this passage. Let's look at another example, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has, or, sorry, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, we see a word uh, that's very clearly theologically profound, reconciled, reconciliation, reconciling. Uh, but not only is that a theologically profound term, you notice that word's mentioned throughout the passage. So we could actually consider that a contextually uh, crucial term as well. So sometimes these uh, certain words may fall under various categories of terms. So it's reconciled. Reconciliation is both theologically profound and contextually crucial in this passage. Some other words that are theologically profound in this passage, even the idea of a new creation, of old things, new things, um, those sort of ideas can be considered theologically profound as well. The next type of uh, non-routine or significant terms are what we could call historically particular terms. These are culturally, geographically, or historically particular term, particular terms that may not be understood outside of the world of the Bible. So before we look at our passage, let me give you a couple examples throughout Scripture of this. Um, some historically particular terms. Think of the idea of the Sadducees and Pharisees. There's a cultural a significance to understanding who these people were. Currencies in scripture like talents or denarii, etc., um, are historically particular. Uh, how about measurements? Cubits, homers, other uh, types of measurements mentioned in scripture are going to have a little bit uh, difference culturally and historically. Locations geographically like Samaria or Beth Ephra or Shafir are all locations in scripture that are geographically uh, different from us today. And so we've got to understand uh, some of these terms and want to dive into our study. I do want to read this example from the book as well, because I think sometimes even certain ideas uh, can change over time. We don't understand the significance of the term uh, in that day and age as we have that term today or have that idea today. So the book says this, to give an even more poignant example, how many modern readers resonate with the shame of a Roman cross. After all, most first century recipients of Paul's letters had likely seen victims hanging upon crosses, something no modern reader has thankfully experienced. First century readers of the New Testament would have understood the ramifications of a cross in society and would have felt emotions related to their experiences having seen Roman crosses that modern readers simply can't comprehend. Indeed, you wonder what a first century Roman citizen would have thought of modern Christians wearing the cross on a necklace. Have the purveyors of such jewelry ever considered that the cross was for early Christians a sign of shame and death and execution? To some degree, we'll need to think outside the box about what terms might be historically particular, even when they're quite common in modern vernacular. So the cross, we may not think as being historically particular. Uh, because we're familiar with the cross in our uh, culture today. But think about the difference of how that uh, context today is different than the context they would have experienced the cross under then, the historical context of literally seeing people die on the cross, the shame of that. Um, it's a little different today. So even a word like that, we want to mark as historically particular and seek to understand what was the historical context, the, the meaning of that word, or that idea in that day and age. Uh, 
an example from scripture of historically particular terms would be Hosea 11, 1 through 5. So think of some uh, historical, cultural, and geographical terms that we would want to dive into from this passage. Hosea 11, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So a couple of terms, we see some geographical or political uh, particular terms. Uh, Israel's mentioned, Egypt, Ephraim, which is really a reference to one of the tribes of Israel specifically. Uh, Assyria is mentioned. So we want to understand the uh, geographical, but also really the political uh, background to these, these uh, titles, these countries. There's a historical cultural uh, con concepts of sacrificing the Baal, uh, burning idols, or burning offerings to idols, cords, ropes, that kind of thing that we would want to dive into as well. So we could consider these historically particular terms. The next one are what we would call exegetically or te and textually uncertain terms. So exegetically and textually uncertain terms. These are when the context doesn't reveal or sorry, these are words that are exegetically or textually uncertain in their context. And there's actually uh, three categories of exegetically and textually uncertain terms. So words that are exegetically or textually uncertain in their context. The first type are what we could call uh, as exegetical ambiguity. There's exegetical ambiguity. This is when the context doesn't reveal how a certain word should be translated. So in the very passage we just read, a few verses down in Hosea 11, we see that it mentions, and this is the ESV I'm reading from, uh, it says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So you may not notice anything specific about that verse as we read it uh, in the ESV, but if we were to read that same verse in the NIV, uh, it would actually be translated quite differently. Instead of it saying that Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One, the NIV actually interprets it negatively, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful and holy one. So this is based on a uh, difference in understanding of the context here, the exegetical ambiguity. The Hebrew word rud uh, in this verse means to roam about freely. It can have both a positive uh, or negative connotation. Again, depending on the context, it can mean roaming freely in a positive sense. Or it can mean roaming freely, going out uh, in a rebellious way, okay? And there's a preposition uh, with that, which can also mean with or against. So there's a lot of ambiguity in this. Is, is Hosea uh, 11, 12 trying to say that uh, all the other nations of Israel, all the other tribes of Israel are uh, disobeying God, but Judah is still walking with God and is faithful? Or is it saying that even Judah is against God, is not walking with him, is against the faithful one. So this is something we would want to dive into and try to understand uh, why uh, there's a difference here and, and, and try to make an uh, interpretive decision here. And so actually most of these, as we're going to see, 
uh, as we go back to last week, we talked about various translations. A lot of these are going to come out as we're studying different translations. We wouldn't notice this verse. Uh, we wouldn't mark these this idea as exegetical, exegetically ambiguous. Um, but comparing translations can help us identify this. Okay, the next subcategory of exegetically and textually in certain terms are uh, lexical difficulties. This is when a word is used only once in scripture and nowhere else in extra biblical literature. We call this hapax legomenon, which literally means once said. So you can imagine the difficulty when there's a word that's only used one time in scripture. And there are times where a word may be used in scripture once, but as you look at history, as you look at other documents, it's used. And so we can understand the meaning of it in that context. This is a word that's only used in scripture one time and nowhere else. An example of this is Ecclesiastes 2.8. Um, it says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. And then here's the part of debate. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So the Hebrew word is Shaddah. It's only found here in the Bible. And so some translated as, as harem or concubines, as the ESV did. Others translated as musical instruments or treasure chests. So there's some uncertainty because of uh, just no context of what this word means. And so it doesn't dramatically change our, you know, the meaning of what uh, Solomon's communicating in Ecclesiastes. He's simply talking about bringing all these things to himself and, and none of them bringing satisfaction. And so um, we see there's a little bit of, of a difficulty here. And so we want to be aware of that as we're studying scripture. Okay. Uh, the third one are what we would call textual issues. This is when a word is translated differently due to a varying textual basis. So again, as we're studying different translations, and especially as we're studying uh, a translation that might use like the King James and New King James, the Textus Receptus versus a lot of modern translations that use uh, more of the Masoretic text. Um, there's going to be uh, some difference, okay? There's going to be a difference in um, this based on the textual basis, as we've talked about in the past. An example, this is John 6, 47. In the ESV, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Well, the King James and New King James basically say, whoever believes in me. This is Jesus saying that he's the object of faith. And so, again, a lot of people that hold to a uh, King James only position would say, look, you're, the ESV, these modern translations are leaving out the object of faith. Well, really, in the context of that, um, it doesn't change. We know the object of faith in John 6 is Jesus, whether it says it specifically in that verse or not. But the basis is, again, the Texas Receptus would add that object of faith. Uh, whereas the more modern, uh, the basis for the more modern translations is not going to have that object of faith. So this is something we want to, again, trace it back. Why is there a difference in translation? And it may be because of a textual issue, and we want to dive into that a little bit more in this observation stage. A couple more uh, types of non-routine or um, significant terms we want to mark. The next one are figurative terms. These are words and phrases that convey figures of speech. Figures of speech are found throughout scripture. And it's important that we study, as we study a passage, we're identifying when a figure of speech is being used. So we want to make sure we're careful that, you know, we talked about, we can't 
take everything exactly literally. We want to take it according to the literature. And so we've got to be careful when Scripture uses a figure of speech that we're understanding that. And so an example of this is Psalm 22, 12 through 15. This is David writing. And so these words, I think, apply to David, but we see they're prophetic as to uh, Jesus on the cross as well. And so think about what are some figures of speech in this these verses? Uh, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So a lot of figures of speech there. Um, he talks about bulls and lions. Uh, was David literally surrounded by bulls and lions? No, he's talking about his enemies. He's talking about feeling like these beasts are against him. Uh, he talks about uh, being poured out like water. Um, you know, again, a figure of speech. He's not literally being poured out like water. His heart is like wax. It's melting. This is a figure of speech to showing his anguish, showing uh, his feelings, his emotion. He's dried up like baked clays, laid down in the dust of death. So these are very um, poetic ways, figurative ways of describing his feeling. And so we can relate to that uh, much more than we can, um, you know, if he just was expressing this in a literal sense. So this poetic way, this figure of speech helps us to probably relate more so with uh, what is being communicated. Okay, so we want to be on the lookout for figurative terms. The next one is very similar, symbolic terms. Uh, these are words and phrases that convey symbolic significance in a given context. These terms can be either uh, literal or figurative, but they carry a normally expected and frequently repeated pattern of meaning in specific contexts. So we've talked about this before. We've got to have balance when it comes to uh, symbolic uh, understanding. Some people will run to one extreme and say, Scripture is all symbolic. Everything's just symbolic, and we're going to look for the symbolic meaning behind it, anything and everything. Um, and so, of course, the pendulum swung too far in that way. But sometimes we can probably want to push back against that too much to where we're not understanding when symbolism is clearly being used in Scripture. Um, and we might ignore that fact when Scripture is very clear that this is something symbolic, okay? So we want to be careful with this. The book says, obviously, you should exercise caution in determining the extent of symbolic intention, but you shouldn't ignore the often explicit and pervasive way in which terms are assigned symbolic value throughout Scripture. So many times these symbolic terms are symbolic throughout Scripture. It's not just a, one, a single occurrence. It's Hey, in this passage, it meant this symbolically. In this passage, it meant this. And so it's a good chance in this passage, it is symbolic as well. An example of this, John 6, 53 to 58. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. 
whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So here we have to see these words as symbolic. Jesus is not literally saying to, to physically eat his flesh, to be a cannibal, to drink his blood, to feed on him, uh, that he is actual bread. He's not a person. He's just a, a bread person. That, that's not what Jesus is communicating here. It's symbolic. And we see that in the context. And we see that uh, really throughout the New Testament as it references, um, you know, even communion as being symbolic of Jesus' blood being shed, his body being broken. Uh, so that we're receiving it by faith, just like we would eat and partake of something. We're receiving it personally by faith. And so we have to be careful to note these symbolic terms. The book goes on to say, while special hermeneutics are involved in the interpretation of symbols in Scripture, the general principle of authorial intent remains. A symbol's meaning is that intended by the author, and thus we must apply the basic procedures of considering the context, noting the point of resemblance, and tracing the pattern of symbolic usage as a means of interpreting its intended sense. However, this stage of observation, our primary concern is to recognize symbolic terms as such, allowing for more precise interpretive conclusions to come. So when it comes to symbolic terms, if the author did not intend it to be symbolic, then it's not symbolic, okay? That's where, again, we can run to that extreme where Oh, well, the author didn't mean this, but there's symbolism here. No, the sim symbolism is going to be if it's used intended by the author, just as Jesus is clearly communicating to them that his blood is going to be shed, his body is going to be broken. They have to receive that by faith. Okay. So one final note before we conclude is this idea of thinking conceptually as well. So there's sometimes where uh, we don't have a specific category for um, maybe uh, something significant, and it may not be an actual word or phrase. It may be more of a concept, okay? Um, so it's not a specific word or phrase that we can say that's a, a, a non-routine or significant term. It might be more of a concept. And here's an example of this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we read earlier. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, Except for maybe the word righteousness, there's really no significant terms, you know, specifically that we would need to dive into. But there's a concept that this verse is communicating that we want to try to dive into a little deeper. And that's the concept of what we call substitutionary atonement, that Jesus uh, takes our sin upon himself. He's our substitute. He bears God's wrath in our place. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness, okay? And so there's a concept at play, even though these verse, this verse has some pretty basic words, again, outside of maybe the word righteousness, no major words, no uh, significant terms, but the concept itself requires attention to dive into. And so uh, they give that example to encourage us, be on the lookout. Maybe if there's not a specific word, there may be an idea, a concept that's being communicated that we want to mark and note uh, in this observation stage. Okay, a couple concluding thoughts, real quick. Quick, as we seek to identify non-routine words and phrases, it's important to realize that many of them may fall under more than one category. So, as we noted uh, in Second Corinthians five, uh, we saw reconciliation being repeated, and so therefore it was a, a contextually crucial term, but it's also a theologically profound term. So. 
sometimes they may fall into different categories and the book encourages us that the key is understanding why a certain term is considered non-routine okay it's not just about categorizing it it's can we if if someone says well why is that why do you consider that non-routine or why do you consider that significant do we have an answer do we have a response uh to why we're marking it as non-routine so that's the key so that concludes our study of chapter five again we're in this observation stage i know throughout this a lot of times we're just throwing out ideas and 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 hopefully it leaves us hungry to take the steps to interpretation as we're marking some of these terms we're not able in this study to dive in deep but it's at least uh getting us to be on the lookout for these terms okay so hopefully um this has been a benefit to you and we're going to continue our study uh we'll pick up with chapter six next week still thinking through observation uh, and so we are progressing on thank you for listening and hope to see you uh in person in our uh, discipleship class 9 a.m on sundays and uh, continue this study together. So take care.